0: Welcome to SEEDS, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Welcome everyone. Welcome along to SEEDS Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me, as this week we're going to be speaking with Faumina Felurini Maria Tafunai. And we have a really great conversation because we talk a lot about her background and her family's origins in Samoa, but growing up here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We also talk a lot about wayfinding and the adventures that she's been having out on the ocean, using waka to travel between Polynesian islands and what that might teach us today. If you enjoy this, then check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog, because there's almost 250 of those. And there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz. Also, just a note to say we hit a milestone recently, which is 100,000 listens of the podcast. So thank you everybody who supported it and told other people about it as a source of good stories of inspiring people doing amazing things. And I really appreciate those of you who listen to an episode like this and then decide to share it on social media because it definitely helps the word to get out to other people. Now let's get straight into this conversation with Faumalina. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Faumalina Felolini Maria Tafunai.
1: Oh, thanks for having me on the show, uh, Stephen.
0: And I'm really glad that you could join me um, because I'm really curious about what you do. (laughs) And I know that involves a lot thinking about wayfinding people's journeys and the ocean. But before we talk about that, I always like to go back in time with people. And so in your case, could you just tell us a bit about where you're from and what life was like when you were a child?
1: I'm from originally Samoa, my parents, uh, my father Lopeti, Ma'olopeti is from the village of Molifanua and my mother Nivanga, she was from Asanga and uh, they came over in the late 60s as part of I guess a wave of uh, immigrants from Samoa to come and work in New Zealand and uh, they finally met In Christchurch, and uh, there they had uh, six children, of which I'm number three, which I always say makes me the mediator. And uh, for me, growing up in uh, Christchurch, it was quite a strange experience because uh, my weekends were filled with, I guess, being Samoan, you know, hanging out with my cousins and going to church here. So it was a Samoan based church. And then and during the week, I'd go to school and take on this other sort of world that was really different from my own, mm. you know. So the food was different, people uh, acted different. Mm. Um, and even myself, uh, you know, I there was just lots of knowing that I wasn't the same as my classmates. Um, but in that uh, discovering, I guess, uh, Maori people <laughs> That was a big part of my childhood just right. like, Discovering people who are Maori And like me And their language was really similar to mine And there was you know, um, Kapahaka which I got involved with As a young I guess young teenager mm-hmm. And from that started this journey Of really embracing um, Tangata whenua And knowing Actually that I came from somewhere else mm. So that was a sort of quite a big Um, part of my life is knowing that I was an immigrant. Mm
0: -hmm. Already, you know, your journey is so so fascinating to me. Um, How did you start to reconcile that as a child?
1: Um, I think there's definitely things that as you, you see, I remember when we we were Catholic, and you go to, you know, you'd make your Holy Communion. But in Samoa, you get dressed up and like, Bright pink and these sequins and feathers on your on your dress, and here <laughs> everyone was in embroidery anglaise and <laughs> had a pretty blue ribbon, and um, and so when I when I saw how different that was, that was probably the first time when my eldest sister. Uh, was dressed up for her communion. And I think my parents really saw that too because then later on, you know, maybe three, four years when I did mine, I was in in embroidery anglaise (laughs) and (laughs) my hair was slicked back. (laughs) And I think there's a dampening down you do of yourself Mm. Um, and you're not celebrating so much who you are. And even in our names and, you know, when you introduced me, people... Many people here in Christchurch will know me as Maria, and we adopted that name, which is my middle name, because my parent... Oh, actually, my, my teachers especially couldn't say my name. you know. And you can imagine every day when the role is called out, and they just go... And I just say, present. <laughs> 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 and so, yeah, you know, that's in front of you, in your entire class, mm. which every name could be said except for yours. Ah. So... I think trying to fit in is a big part of um, being an immigrant child.
0: Mm, Yeah. And your parents, why had they come to Christchurch in particular rather than Auckland or another place?
1: It's a good question. And I think it follows the pathway of most immigrants when the first of your brothers or uncles settle. Mm -hmm. Wherever they settle, then that tends to be the place where you start bringing over the rest of your family. Mm And so mum and dad um, both came because elders and their family had settled, actually firstly in Dunedin for my father um, and my mum, their shared relations in, in Christchurch. So it, it's through those sorts of waves. Mm. But it is unusual for um, Pacific Island families to settle in the south.
0: Mm. So what I was thinking is that Auckland, I think, is like, one of the largest Pacific congregation points, isn't it? From from all over,
1: I, I think Mum and Dad too. Um, we kind of they had this idea to that if we weren't in the places of all the Pacific Island peoples, we might have a better shot Mm. at making it in this land of milk and honey. And hence we grew up on, you know, and so in Christchurch we grew up, I guess, in the west side of town. We went to Burnside High School. There were, you know, 2,000 kids and probably 50 Pacific Islander Maori Mm. at that time. And most of every one of us, our other relations were on the east side and they went to school with their cousins and we mm. didn't have that experience and mum and dad plotted <laughs> that we would be over this side of town and um, to give us more chances and, and for them education was prime mm. so sending us to a good school and making sure that I guess we had good influences around that area was and, may, and forcing us to go to university as well was right. another pathway
0: Why do you think education was so important to them?
1: Um, I think there's the perception of, you know, that's the way you get ahead. The way you get ahead is that you learn to speak really good English, and Mm so mum and dad uh, really encouraged us about that. And so there was language loss on the Samoan side for us, and uh, we've tried hard to, you know, make our own amends as adults. Um, And I think it's also because of the their own upbringing so my dad I think he went to like he went to primary school but I don't think he went past maybe four years of primary school and he Mm. went back and helped his mom and worked in the plantation and my mother went to form two and so they saw that they didn't have this but then when I look at you know when they were here my mother went and started became a chef you know, not they knew how to learn, and this is the trick, isn't it? Mm. They knew how to learn. My dad learned how to read through the Bible, and you know, my mom, I think about it, so she had to learn, when she learned how to become a chef, she also had to learn you know parts of the French language, and you know she she was a real avid learner. And, um, later on in life, actually, we both went and did a certificate in business, uh, which was a really great experience cause she was so geeky. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that's really cool. I always, yeah, it's just fascinating to think cause sometimes we take it for granted education, you know, and so I'm always curious, particularly, um, for people who've come to the country from somewhere else and clearly it was a value, you know, to instill that in their children, get a good education. Yeah
1: yeah and for me, out of my siblings, I was um the voracious reader, mm-hmm. and so I think they kind of saw early on that you know I had i you know that I was good at schoolwork, and so that became the thing within our family that I was sort of characterized with mm. and although it didn't mean that I was particularly um studious <laughs> it just mean I you know I, I learned quickly I was a good writer right um and yeah, which came of course because I read so much and so there was a lot put upon me that you know um that I would go and succeed within that realm
0: mm. yeah interesting and growing up did you go back as a family to Samoa was that a thing that you like how old were you when you first went back
1: um well I was 6 months so I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> uh we didn't really go back as a family because it was so expensive yeah, back then you yeah. know it was a, um you know it was a final like it was a final destination and with, you weren't going via right. Samoa to get somewhere. So often they would take one or two of us but then uh, I was fortunate that um my uncle Ili Ili and his wife Ososo, uh, they only had one child, Allison, and so I kind of got to piggyback <laughs> into their family and, and go and visit Samoa. Hmm. So the first memories, I guess, I was probably around 11 and then 15 and then went back um, after I did my OE actually, yeah. and so I went from being in London And then went to Samoa.
0: And what was it like the first time, like when you were 11, say, going back? Like, what was that like? Because you've grown up in, you know, a Samoan family based here. You know some of the languages, you know, but... And you're going back kind of to home, but it's not really home because you'd never have lived there. Was that a feeling at that young age or... Yeah.
1: Yeah, I I think... um People over there, like my people, my family over there, um, really went all out to make us feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I remember being quite frightened though because a long drop, you know. <laughs> it was like so. That's a funny thing about so most Samoans who come over here are urbanized, you know. So we don't live rural places because there's not the work, mm-hmm. right? So, but when we go back to Samoa, we're totally like in a rural place and so i remember that i remember um lots of kids calling us balangi so even when i was 30 kids would just yell out oh there goes that balangi so that became my name in the village for until they got to know me um but yeah i you know um a place of real fun as a child running around and uh you know tropical fruit which of course you know now we can get lots of tropical fruit in the supermarket Mm. but you couldn't get pineapples and mangoes um you know when i was growing up so those are the things i remember and and swimming of course
0: yeah oh that's great so coming up through your teenage years did you know sort of the area that you wanted to what uh, yeah did you have something you wanted to study next or do next it sounds like your parents were sure that you should go to university um yeah how did that play out
1: um my parents were quite indulgent i think uh, when it came to what would what do we want to be you Mm -hmm. know and and so i remember when i was like about 15 um, I was like i'm going to be a lawyer, and you know these are this is music to their ears <laughs> maybe to even yours <laughs> and and because I thought I was pretty good at arguing and, uh-huh. and debating <laughs> and uh then later a year later then I, mean, I was like no i 'm going to be an actress <laughs> so they, and but at both points you know um so um I, I, I was studying drama at school and Mum and Dad said, well, look for a drama school, and I saw one in, in Melbourne, mm. um, and we had a look at that, and then, I, I don't know, that that kind of faded away for me, and then I went to university, and I studied Māori, so Māori language mm. at the time, and I remember my parents going, why are you doing that? And I said, I promise you, I will get a job with this, yeah. <laughs> and, um, but um, having said that, I so I was there at Canterbury for two years and and studied it, but I and didn't what, know what I was going to do with it. I was just good at it,
0: right? Yeah. And what era are we talking about? What years was that?
1: Oh, so that's eighty nine, ninety. Okay, those are my Canterbury uh, years. So you could have probably found me in the cafe more than the library at that time. <laughs> um, and then I I got serious and I said, okay, well, what is the thing I want to do? And mm. it was media. Mm. So. And um, I looked around and the I'd missed the deadline for the journalism school um, down here and the broadcasting school. So I applied to Auckland to their communications degree. Mm. And um, yeah, I just decided that the thing I've always kind of been good at has been writing. And it's how I conned my way through, <laughs> through many essays at university that I didn't really believe in or research well. So I moved to Auckland and did the comms degree, mm-hmm. um, and majored in, in journalism in mm-hmm. print.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And at the time that you were doing it, did you have an end goal in mind? Like, I, I want to be a writer for a newspaper, or I want to do yeah. What What were you thinking through?
1: Um, I think there was there was definitely um, magazines in my mind. Um, in my final year, Mana magazine. Uh, was set up and I was really interested in, in those stories and I remember saying to my boyfriend at the time, oh, you know, I really would love to go to uh, countries and meet indigenous peoples and, you know, tell these stories and he was like, that sounds like a terrible idea and hence we didn't last very long. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was kind of fascinated by that but at the same time I was worried that I would be pigeonholed as a journalist as, you know, go and you're a brown girl, go cover brown stories which was sort of, um, you know, what was happening in the industry at that time Mm. Um, but it turns out that's actually what I love doing
0: So what happened after you finished?
1: Um, So I actually um, went and did um, eight months in public service so um, I went and worked for the government for, for all of eight months and I um, worked for the career service writing careers resources and then um, in a disagreement with um, my boss because I was producing, actually um, produced their first bilingual resource and, you know, really that's the beginning of me writing these um, Indigenous stories. Mm-hmm. And my boss at the time wouldn't recognise that and just said, oh, we can put that just under miscellaneous so, at my review meeting, I also resigned. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's why it was only that long. And um, I went into newspapers, worked at Kapiti Observer. Mm. And I would recommend that if you're a rookie uh, journalist, go and work somewhere beautiful, like the Kapiti Coast. Mm. You know, so. It's um, a beautiful place, isn't oh, it?
0: And it's the Kapiti Island right there. It's just. Mm such a a nice spot
1: amazing and it's amazing on a fine day and it's amazing in a storm you know Mm. it's um, a great place to live and so i was there and then i um went to waikato Mm. so i worked at the waikato times for a couple of years as a sub editor so i moved into subbing really early in my career because um i recognized that i was a stylish writer but not necessarily like had that the real good foundations and basics and thought that you know, correcting other people's mistakes every day for a couple of years would, you know, hone that skill, which which it did. Um, so and what are you
0: looking for as a sub-editor? You know, you get a piece that's sent in. Yeah, how are you thinking, how can I make this better? Or Yeah, what is it that you're trying to do?
1: Um, I think we're trying to make sure that the main point is right up there in the top, you mm-hmm. know, and that in that first sentence, you're really kind of getting – essentially the most memorable guts of that story right and
0: so if you read nothing else you still get the essence
1: yeah and that's pretty much how journalism works like the most necessary uh facts and um but also there's the hook you know that and all these these kind of things that we look for is like we get rid of all the cliches or the tautologies or the Mm -hmm. oh now there's all these (laughs) grammar words coming through um And clarity, clarity is a really big thing. Um, We also sort of make sure that, you know, if you're, I I really liked business writing. Mm. So you follow the money, make sure there's the right amount of zeros, (laughs) Um, you know, so you have to do a bit of math yourself. Um, And I think, you know, so you're also writing the headlines and all that. So you kind of have to, you do have to respect the. The reporter and not insert so much of yourself mm-hmm. and i think that's part of the craft and yeah when i was a sub as well we were doing the design work with the newspapers and mm. uh, i really enjoyed that aspect too
0: yeah oh that's um, really good i do a little bit of writing myself and um a, a bit for spin off and there's the editor there the business editor michael andrew he's really amazing at taking what i've done and saying you know you're You're putting too much information in here. You're trying to make too many points, um, which I I tend to do. You know, I want to give the reader all of the facts, all of the information. He's like, no, we need to just cut this bit out. It's just distracting, and we need to not go into the detail here and kind of, you know, guiding the reader through the article so that they can come away with a sense of, okay, I got the main points. Um, Yeah, it's a real skill, though, I think, to be a really good editor.
1: Yeah, it's a funny thing that I even at university and maybe before that, that was um something I did for friends and so I was, I was kind of always editing mm. and um and it became you know, so later on I became an uh, uh when I went back to you know I earlier when I said when I went back to Samoa I ended up freelancing for the newspaper there. So I was in England and just freelancing, working in different newspapers, did a bit with the Guardian Group, Uh, but the bit I always feel like I almost got is that I had an interview with the Financial Times, Uh and then they said, oh, how long can you work for us? And I said, oh, eight months, (laughs) that's all I had on my visa, that was all that was left, (laughs) so that was the last time I spoke with them. Um, But I went to Samoa, and I was freelancing, and then I ended up um, uh, as the deputy editor for the Samoa Observer. Which taught me a lot about, you know, people management, of course, mm. um, but um, working in a different country to, you know, to, I guess, your own. And I mean that as in culturally things are done in a different way. Mm-hmm. And it took me such a long time to reorient myself into that way of being um, so that I could do the best job for the people I was interviewing mm-hmm. and also for the, the readership. Mm. Um I, and the blunt way of saying that is that Samuel kicked my ass. <laughs> and I bounced back. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that must have been interesting to go as an adult as well, to live there. You know, we were talking before about the childhood. You know, you grew up here in Christchurch. You went to Burnside and you went to Canterbury University. And, you know, and then to actually be yourself as an adult living there. Um, yeah. What, what was that like? <laughs>
1: um, yeah, it's... Quite different being, you know, being there without my parents Mm -hmm. because I still had a lot of freedom, but most women my age did not have freedom in in the same way. So, physical freedom. And so, most of my friends were actually males because, you know, they could go out after work and all that. So, there was that aspect. Mm -hmm. Um, Then I think, I mean, I always had really just worked hard, partied hard for most of my media career and that's how most junos live and i'd carried that over there um but at the same time i was figuring out lots of things about why my parents were the way they were right so there was lots of understanding um coming to me by being in samoa and um, hearing stories about them but also just observing um people in the village, people in the urban, and think, oh, that's why mum and dad do that. Hmm. So
0: So what were some examples of that? Yeah.
1: So um, one thing is that in Samoa, of course, you don't have all the laws about can't build this on your property, can't build that. My dad was always building these random sheds all around our property. And when you go back to Samoa, you (laughs) see all these buildings that – you know, go up and down and there's like a new Whale Samoa over there and then they they take that down because they think, oh no, it's better if it's over there or the family gets bigger. Hmm. And so that helped me understand my father a Hmm. lot more. And then I guess sexuality in the way that it's expressed quite freely here in in Aotearoa compared to Samoa. Hmm. So then I could understand some of my, so my mom's my mum being conservative, my mum not being able to talk about um some of those aspects with me, um, you know, as a young woman mm-hmm. uh because it's it's not spoken about there. Mm. Um and so, yeah, I I could see how far mum and dad had um, moved their lives to try and raise these kind of Kiwi Samoan kids mm. and really push themselves in that. So um I really appreciated that. Um they themselves were trying to learn how to be in New Zealand mm. and not knowing, um, I guess, you know, not knowing what happens or maybe just not always trusting <laughs> that that other people would look after us in the same ways that uh, the village looks after you, mm. you know, in, uh, in Samoa. So they lost a lot of that, you know, the village raising their children. mm mm-hmm. So to come over here and suddenly just be in a street and you don't know your neighbors, mm. they, they were doing a lot of that work themselves.
0: Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you probably had a much greater appreciation for all that they'd given up, but also the way that they were. Um, I interviewed someone named Mark Ambundo. He's actually from Kenya. And he said that was the hardest thing about New Zealand is that he came here and on a Tuesday the the rubbish bins would be out on the street. But he would be like, who put them there? Where are the people because in Kenya, people would be out in the street like talking to their neighbors, they would all know each other, and he said that was the, that's the, one of the biggest things is in New Zealand it's like you know you shut your door and you don't get to know your neighbors in the same way
1: yeah, for sure, and actually, one of the things I realized is um so my father, who worked at Donohue's, which was here for many years and then moved to china um So he worked in a factory, but he never saw himself as a factory worker. He saw himself as a chief and a father, um, a leader, brother. Mm -hmm. And when he went back and retired in Samoa, and then, my gosh, I felt like he was, you know, say, is my dad unleashed. And he was out there helping build the school, um, petitioning the government over the use of their road. And he got lights put on their road, and he was – you know, employing someone to help him with the farm. And now he's the mayor. <laughs> and mm. I was like, man, he really had held himself back inside mm. in Aotearoa being who he was. And um, recently I was in a relationship with a um, wonderful man from Papua New Guinea. And when we talked about him moving here, I was like, no, no, you'll never get to be mm. who you could be because of the the external I think the way um, I don't know, just external pressures that come in and are already creating barriers for you. Mm. And, you know, so an accent, you know, so it, like you've got an accent. In, yeah. But I'm sure that the cop doesn't go, Oh, so show me your license now, mm. Stephen mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Now that you've I've heard your accent, you know. Yeah. So some accents yeah. yeah So
0: the sacrifices that your father as an example you know gave up to come here to give his children the opportunities you know you can reflect on that can't you and just realize what he gave up given what the potential was back home
1: yeah and just you know the ability to relax mm. and be yourself a hundred percent yourself mm. speak your own language you know eat the foods you want to eat um, we did have a good relationship with the fire department here because we used to hold, you know, my dad has his own kind of umu, which is like a hangi pit. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we did become those neighbours. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think that's a big thing when we, people say, oh, you know, you've got to be your whole self. But imagine being 40 years somewhere mm. and not being able to be your whole self.
0: Mm. Yeah, and it's probably it's kind of those invisible things that you can't see but that do hold you back um you know the the unspoken racism and the way that you're treated because of the accent or the the you know yeah it's it's a fascinating um situation for immigrants i think
1: Yeah, and maybe how people view wealth here is always an interesting one, you Mm -hmm. know. So I know people always say, oh, your family's so rich in their relationship and, you know, um, and the way we are together. Um, But, you know, on the books, like, I guess the thing is um, here wealth is about hoarding and, you know, back home, wealth is about distribution. Mm. And so those how that's valued and how you're seen as a contributing person is, is a different. And, and I know, my, you know, um, when we talk about the racism, it's just so such little simple things about the types of service you might get, you know, whether it's yeah. in a shop or the airport or all those sorts of things mm-hmm. that I fully, you know, have seen my dad um, just you know, and I think, oh my gosh, he's like this chief and a leader and he was he was the president of a Catholic church and Christchurch and he's having to put up with this really crappy service because mm-hmm. someone is looking at the size of him and you know, the size of his hands and going, He's a threat <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, and treating him that way.
0: Yeah. Well you've had a lot of different things to think about. <laughs> <laughs> and tell me, you know, living in Samoa and now, you know, you're here back in New Zealand. Like, did you, did you ever think that Samoa would be your permanent place? Or was New Zealand always calling back as well? How do you, how do you view it now? You know, like, wh- what would you say about your identity?
1: Um, yeah, I, I mean, I always say I'm Samoan. I don't say I'm a New Zealand-born Samoan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like when I get off the plane in Samoa, that I, as if I've been holding my breath the entire time and right. then suddenly I get out there and I get to exhale. So that's just a beautiful feeling. Um, I still call New Zealand home, but I still cheer Manu Samoa over the All Blacks any day. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm, I guess, you know, think about uh, my true place, it, it's Samoa. Um, I can't deny, I feel in some ways, you know, we have this term in Samoa called Afakasi, which is a transliteration of half-caste. And in some ways, I feel like a half-caste because half of me is raised with Samoan values and experiences, and the other half is raised by white Christchurch, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. both those things um, are sort of inside me, if if not, although not in my bloodline.
0: Mm-hmm. They've both shaped you. Yeah.
1: Definitely, definitely. And I, you know, I'm grateful for both of those, and um but more grateful for the Sam one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fair enough. Yeah, I actually, I feel a little bit similar in some ways because I do have an accent and I came to New Zealand when I was a child. So I was seven years old when we first moved here. So people hear my accent and they make assumptions and I'm not easy. I'm very difficult to put in a pigeonhole and say, well, that's an American or that's a, kiwi you know i i don't easily fit the mold so i can kind of relate a little bit from my own context of struggling and sometimes it's what's my identity am i a new zealander or you know i've got this accent but where am i from you know so yeah it's a i think all of us who've grown up in multiple countries probably have this a little bit
1: yeah and i i you know, because I think out of my brothers and sisters, I've spent the most time back in Samoa and um, my late husband was Samoan too. So mm-hmm. uh, I guess we've had just been surrounded by it a little bit more longer. And I would hope that once COVID um, relaxes and those borders open that I get to go back.
0: Mm. Yeah, Definitely well, I'd love to come and visit sometime because it sounds amazing. <laughs> 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 and so talk us through then, you're, you, you're in some of it. What happened next? And I'd love to find more about the wayfinding and uh, the, yeah, take us on that journey and, and what that's.
1: So I've been fascinated with celestial navigation and wayfinding and the settlement of um, this part of the Pacific uh, for quite a while now, maybe 20 years or so. Um, and I think that it started off with, uh, I studied, uh, did Polynesian studies at university, just one paper. And I thought it was a terrible paper <laughs> because, um, I guess they, you know, they were still teaching drift theory by Andrew Sharp. They were, you know, and they were trying to say, oh yeah, maybe, you know, it's so a, they're looking at, um, the Contiki coming from South America and, The idea, uh, the idea that um, Polynesians had purposely navigated and settled the Pacific was still quite a new idea and one that wasn't fully adopted. And I came away feeling from like thinking after I did that paper that I couldn't recognize the Pacific they were talking about. Mm. And then fast forward about... um, I think in 2005, I started reading intensely about it. I had given up journalism to become a painter, so I was a visual artist for a few years, and so I started um, painting and sculpting um, on this theme. And at the same time, I then started working for Waitahu, and um, I was, uh, became the editor of their quarterly uh, magazine called Takaraka. And Waitaha started uh, their journey in reviving um, navigational knowledge, and through them and through being the editor, uh, I got to sort of write stories about that, and I got to go to a uh, meeting down in Bluff in two thousand and nine, and Hikunuku Mai Heke was there, and um, and Hoturua Barclay Kerr, who's become you know mentor and friend, uh, was there. Tipene O'Regan was leading um, the charge on that, and just sitting in the room. Um, and as what happens, and you know, as a journalist, is that you can sit in a room and just—it's not even like work. You just in in the presence of these titans, and uh, they were telling you know these stories of journeying and. For me, first of all, I never thought I'd get to meet somebody who had been on the water. I was be just been reading about it. And then in two thousand and ten, um, a, a journey called Temana or Tempuana of seven waka from around the Pacific were undertaking this huge journey um of going to from Aotearoa to Hawaii to San Francisco down to Galapagos and then um Coming back through the Pacific on their way to the South Pacific um, Art Festival in Solomon's, mm. and I managed to convince my editor to send me to Samoa, so I could com- then convince <laughs> the um, the fleet captain to to put me on a on a walker and and I, at the time I'd never actually sailed, I but I knew how to tie a bowline. That was it, <laughs> 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 and. Um, but i did all those things i and I, I flew over i convinced my way um onto waka i had to have some friends on there and that started a journey for me um of firstly you know i was writing about it but then i put down the pen and i just started becoming part of the voyaging society um, found ways to be useful you know of course um, go on and do comms, whatever they would ask me to do mm-hmm. and I remember my husband saying to me at one point um, when I was telling him that I'm going to sail again from Fiji to Solomon Islands. He's like, but I thought you just did that one time because it was your dream. And I was like, oh, yes, that's right. But now I'm a sailor. (laughs) And so that, you know, so the fascination for me of being, you know, when you talk about the footsteps of your ancestors, that's what I feel like when I'm sailing. I am Mm. in those footsteps of my ancestors. My favorite part of... um, of sailing is when I can't see land hmm. and I think this is what my ancestors saw wow. you know yeah. and you know so that um, you know so it's been more than a decade now of sailing some years more than others depending on how mm. the family the family needs you to be at home more
0: yeah um, and when you're talking about sailing how long are you on that journey like uh, what's the time frames that we're talking about
1: um I think probably for me, the longest stretch I did was coming back from Solomon's um, and that was a 17 day stretch. Uh, um, and we were we were trying to um, come out east, but it wasn't really happening for us. So we ended up in um, Vanuatu and in um, I think Santo and uh, Espirito Santo there. So that that for me was, you know, so I think altogether I might have been away for uh six weeks, <laughs> you mm. know, so but in, in that we're on land and then we go back on on yeah. sailing and that. Um couple and when of you're years.
0: sailing like what how many people are on oh, each okay. boat like just describe it for the people listening sure. yeah. So
1: I sail on um double hulled, uh Waka Haurua, Um my main Waka is called Honui. And as part of Treaty Voyaging Trust, and our waka are based on um, you know so our ancient um, sh- uh, so ancient style of waka. So, um, but then there's modern technology there as well. Mm-hmm. So we've got solar panels and um, toilets. Uh, partly, uh, some of the modern things are because of the compliance issues with um, you know coming into harbors. And so we sleep in the hulls, so that's – often that's the big thing. People are like, where do you sleep? Right. But actually um, we can fit 16, so there's Mm. um, eight bunks down in the hulls. And um, and mostly we're wind-powered. And, yeah, so I think, I mean, these canoes, obviously they've done very long stints. You know, going up to San Francisco is quite a way. Mm -hmm. Um, And – is um and i guess we you know a number of we carry a traditional rig like a bermuda rig as well as um sort of a more of a v-shaped rig as well so Mm. uh which allows us to go higher up into the wind
0: Mm. and what's it like when the storms come
1: (laughs) so i guess the thing about storms is that you know so we're in watches so we uh So We might do six hours on, six hours off And you are only in that portion And I know a lot of people go, aren't you scared? But the reality is that you can only do one thing at a time And so if you're just doing that one thing And you concentrate on that Then, you know, um, and you you trust the canoe You trust um, the crew and the captain Then actually, I mean, it's tough and gritty And I think that's what I really like about it Because... For me, my, my professional life is pretty easy, you know, I might get a paper cut, um, but sailing is, challenges me physically, it challenges me uh, mentally to control, like, how scared I could be or how cold I could be, like, whether I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to be six hours in the, in the rain, to accept that that's what that is Mm. and try and make that the best six hours in the rain Mm. so there's a real kind of um controlling with your mind and and someone said to me um just recently one of the differences between say maybe western sailing and say polynesian sailing is that your eyes are up and you are observing everything Mm. you know you're looking at those swells and you're looking at you know stars and wind and, you know, where birds may be and debris may be quite a different style Mm. of, of sailing.
0: Yeah. I'm going to ask a question. I don't know the right words to use, so bear with me. But I lived in Japan for a number of years. And the thing that I loved in Japan was that they had an appreciation of nature that was missing in Western culture, in my opinion. So they would look and say, springtime is coming. The cherry blossoms are opening and there would be news reports and they would, they would predict where the cherry blossoms were coming out and go and have picnics underneath them and things. And I'm just curious, there was a real connection with nature is the point. And I'm just curious for you, you know, being out on the ocean and things, what have you observed or learned about nature itself? And then what has that meant for you personally?
1: I think for me, I think observing nature... Is that nature's talking to you all the time, you know? And when you're, especially when you're on the hoy, on the, which is the big sailing rudder, mm-hmm. if you like, there's a conversation going on. And if you're attuned with it, it's telling you, you know, where that swell is coming, um, you know, where that wind is slightly changing. There's so there's a conversation that I think we're forgetting to have and to listen to. And, of course, you know, in the urban, you've got concrete. Like, that is barring a lot of, I, I feel like it's barring a lot of that conversation because that's the interesting thing I feel is that some a lot of that, you're receiving it through your feet, through the tips of your fingers. It's not just the way we're kind of grown up to go, oh, what did you see? Mm. So in Samoa, when we say... Whaalongo, which is like the Māori word, whakarongo. It's really about sensing. And so, it's Polynesian voyaging, and especially when you're on the Hoi, and that is so much about just sharpening your senses to read what's going on and what are the currents underneath you and what's coming up. And so, I feel in the same way with the cherry blossom that they're looking they've said oh we've had this conversation before mm. we know what's going to come up and that's what they're looking for as those sort of telltale signs mm.
0: yeah that's really good to me you know we're just describing storms coming and going but to me it, it, I, I guess it would be almost like this is just another face of the ocean you know like it's still the same place there happens to be rain falling right now and wind blowing but we're still here, and the waves are bigger or lower. But it's you're still in it; you're part of it. I don't know—is that a part of what you're thinking?
1: Yeah, and I think the thing is that what we, well, we know and what through our experience too is that those storms pass. So you know, I, that you're not in the storm, going "That's it forever," <laughs> you know. And yeah, you are definitely part of it, and I think. And in, in often in what we're trying to do here is as as, as humans, as a species, is command uh, nature. But the idea that you could command the sea is just you know it's just ridiculous. Mm. And so when you're aware of that, that you can't command it, but you can have like a pretty good conversation and that you can learn to in some, in some way submit to it. And, and understand that if you want to really be brutal and fight it, you can do that, but you will use a lot of your energy, mm. you know, so you could all sort of take an easier time or or just sit for a little while mm. and then go again. So you're really um, cognizant of, of your reserves as well. Mm. I think that's the other thing, too. Yeah.
0: So what have you noticed? Like it's clear to me that you've had a background in sort of a, a spiritual you know, upbringing and going to church and other things. And this, these experiences on the ocean and things, like, what have you learned about yourself through going out? And what does that word wayfinding mean you know, for you?
1: For me, wayfinding... Though many people relate it to celestial navigation more, for me, wayfinding is actually looking at the way, behavioural ways of people on the canoe, and how they can journey together and get somewhere that they've, you know, preordained in the best condition possible. Not and themselves, also uh, their canoe and. So to me, when I when I go on, I'm actually a little bit like a social scientist. And I sit back and I'm like, oh, what is this instruction they're giving? And how is this person receiving it? And then how are they relaying it? And, and how is that other person making, like helping them feel like they're, you know, um, they've got some agency here or what's happening over there that they're looking after someone who's a bit seasick or so... All the time, I guess my thing of wayfinding is so much more about maybe human relationships on the canoe. And then when I convert that into uh, the framework or a strategy, that's what I'm looking for in the room. And so, you know, my work now with strategy and facilitation, I'm wayfinding that room. I'm navigating those people Mm. and in a way that... Makes you realise that you are part of the room. Mm-hmm. That you're not just a person that says do this, do that, mm-hmm. and that you can't rely on just this authority that often people do when they step into um, sort of you know spaces where they're they're given a little bit of power. But that will wane if you do not understand how you need to move with the room.
0: Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it's really interesting now to sort of link, and I'd love to f- learn more about what you're doing now, but linking that experience that people can have out on the ocean to learn more about themselves and their character and, and you know, what does that mean when they get off and they're back into their everyday and, and normal life? Um, yeah, it, that's quite interesting to me. <laughs>
1: yeah um, I mean, one thing we often say is that um you're always on the walker, so we don't expect that is you, you go onto the walker and suddenly you're a different person. Mm. In fact, how we choose crew um often is by looking how the way they the way they already act on land and mm. whether they take responsibility, do they pick up the little bit of rubbish that they see someone's dropped, and you know um how helpful they might be, how generous they might be Um, and so we look for those traits and we know that those traits will carry over onto the waka so um, and in the same way if someone is you know selfish and ambitious and all those other things that just shines a light on that when Mm. they're on the canoe as well.
0: Mm. So the work that you're doing today um, tell us a little bit about that and what that involves.
1: Okay so (laughs) My journey into designing a wayfinding framework came from uh, when I was working in Samoa um, and I was working for a local uh, NGO over there called Women in Business Development. Mm -hmm. Um, They were delivering quite a number of projects for people like Oxfam and UNDP and UN Women. And what I saw was how what I thought was um, some badly designed projects. Um, because the Pacifics often criticised for not delivering on on aid projects or not achieving their outcomes, and then when I had a look back into the the designs and the documents, I thought actually it's the framework that you know it's not it's not just about what they're plugging in that's flawed. It's actually the framework is rigid and doesn't allow for people mm. and. And and even though all those strategies about how culture eats strategy for breakfast and all these things, people just seem to fall back into these, you know, old frameworks. And so then I got to thinking and I started talking to our voyaging leader, um, Hoturoa, was there a better way to design? And is there some secret (laughs) that's held within voyaging and wayfinding that could be transposed into a strategy and, you know, so slowly I started moving elements of traditional frameworks and going, oh, could I replace this out? So instead of, you know, your your vision and goals, could I have an island of success and describe an entire ecosystem of success rather than this, what I saw as a kind of a dartboard bullseye, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, and then... So I started when I was starting to replace this, and you know when you look at a lot of um, projects and they look at the background and they'll you know, do a profile on your organisation or profile of the co- country, but they just really just a cut and paste of the last person from the UN who did one or Wikipedia or wherever. And so, what if we then did a different thing and then looked more intimately at like who's on this walker, who's going to deliver this project? Do a three hundred and sixty of their skills and experience, and understand where their talents are, and then what assets are in that walker, mm. and then say, "Oh, okay. Where is their lack, and where is their abundance, and how can we, you know, use the potential of that abundance, mm. um, and then address lack?" Um, so yes, yeah, so I started moving out elements of of traditional frameworks and. So instead of a risk matrices, that's when we used to sing them, I have an island of doom, where and I introduced that because I saw a lot of dishonesty and cut and paste again with um you know sort of risk, and thought hey look you know when I talk to my groups I'm like this is a this is an island where you can have lots of fun, and and just be completely honest and throw every bad thing that could possibly happen. You know as you do your um program or project or develop your business and the honesty and also just the accuracy of what i've seen people put into those matrices you know i i think i'm encouraged as i go on and i'm learning too as i deliver this and so um so i started bringing in this framework and One of the things I'm kind of grateful to the Edmund Hillary Fellowship is that when you apply, they ask you, you know, what's your thing? (laughs) What's your project? And I was like, yes, what is it? And so that made me sit down and do a whole lot of writing around wayfinding and really consolidate my thoughts. Um, And then, so from that point onwards, uh, which I guess is about four years ago, wayfinding has become my main... I guess activity, Um, and I was using it to deliver communications projects across the Pacific. I was still interested in development, Um, but more I think I've started working with more smaller groups now, Um, although working still with, let's say, the Ministry of Culture and Heritage ran um, one for them and some Māori incorporated trusts as well as Māori businesses. The thing for me in terms of the audience that I like to work with is I like to work with indigenous people where they live. So most of my work has been with Pacific people, say like Ni Vanuatu, but in Vanuatu. Mm. So Tongans in Tonga. Um, So COVID's a bit challenging for me in terms of I don't get to be with those people. Mm -hmm. Um, But Zoom is a little bit helpful, so (laughs) that's good. But it has made me refocus back into Aotearoa and... So now that's that's really my mainstay is, I'd say, walker and, and wayfinding. Mm. And w- one of the other great things I find delivering wayfinding workshops is that it, it's almost a decolonizing process for a lot of people mm. to actually shake off, to find that you could dig into your own culture and find the answer for today's problems. Mm. You know, whereas we're told a lot of the times on a... You know culture is a problem, culture you know hinders you mm-hmm. um and for a long time we've you know I think f- especially um I think for Maori, these have been the messages, and wayfinding really is a complete release from that. Mm-hmm. in fact, it it comes from our genealogy, mm-hmm. you know it comes from um our history and wisdom, and just. I see people really relax into it. Mm. Um, mostly they tell me before that, oh, yeah, they were really worried because it's just another strategy session and they were just going to get thinking it's going to be a really boring day. Mm. But in fact, um, you know, there's a lot of laughter. There's, a You know, like I was saying with my dad, you get to be your whole self. It's mm. an amazing thing.
0: Mm. And I think the thing that strikes me about our whole conversation has been some of the wisdom that's there that maybe we've ignored in the past. What I mean by that is, particularly in the Western culture, it's often very individualistic. It's about, what can I get out of this situation? What can I take from it? And yet, the kind of the concepts that you've been talking about, even reflecting on your childhood, and you mentioned your aunt and uncle who had one child, and you kind of tagged along and became part of their group as well, like in Western culture, that wouldn't happen as much. And then you're talking about the waka, you know, who's in the waka with you. You're all a team. You're working together, um, and I think those that those are concepts that deserve to have more attention given to them rather than, you know, I'm Stephen and I got this degree and this is my job and kind of taking people on the journey with you, which I think is a the theme that you said in Samoa. You know, it's it's not just about the individual. You're collectively doing better.
1: Yeah, it's been. Um... You know, when you're talking about um, the person moving people from, I guess, the I, and it's difficult because school really pushes that. You know, mm. you have to cover your work from a very early age. <laughs> um, <Yep>. No collaboration. <laughs> and what I always emphasize um, with people is, and I know there's this, um, you know, the big start with the why, and I say that in the Pacific, mm mm-hmm. Forget about the why, we've always been about who. Who we are, when we think about, when we go through like a porphyry situation and when we go through mahi, it's all about who we are. Mm. And when we understand that, I think the why actually can get layered on top of that. But unless we understand who's in this room, mm. uh, you know, there's no goodwill built, yeah. right? You know, so, and moving people out of their titles,
0: I think there's so much that we could unpack. We could just keep talking for hours. <laughs> but the, like, I went to an event. It was a social enterprise type of event, and it was about um, Maori views of social enterprise and that sort of theme. And I just remember the first... It, we had an hour, and we started introducing ourselves and probably used up 40 minutes, just every single person going around talking about where they were from, who they were, you know, what what was their origin... And from a Western conception, if I had my you know efficiency hat on, <laughs> we were left with like 20 minutes to kind of talk about the topic. But actually what what had been done there was really much deeper because it had been about who's in the room, who are, who are we together rather than so much about there's the speaker there and, and we have to listen to what they have to say. It was a really strong lesson for me um, about, Journeying together
1: Yeah and I think introductions For me in our workshops We can spend Sometimes half a day mm. On an introduction process uh, We have a sort of a mapping process So mm. part of it's in, um, in Tirel, um Just you know normal pepeha um, And then part of it's drawn And the, the question that we put to everybody In every single workshop is um, How did I get in this room and then everybody draws their pathway to that to the room. And I think understanding that suddenly we're all mentally and physically in this room and working on something together is really a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. And it's so often one of the things I remember at school, which I found kind of confusing, is how a teacher walks into your classroom and says, you know, Hi, my name's Mr. Bradley, I'm your teacher. <laughs> they don't know you, and then they try and teach you. <laughs> and so I was thinking, wow, like, how does that help them teach mm. you? Because they don't even know who you are. And mm. I remember at school, when you're talking about when you grew up somewhere different.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, because my parents didn't read um, a lot in English, we never had newspapers. And so years went, over the first two years of um, intermediate school, I just failed current events every day. (laughs) And maybe if they just asked, why do you keep failing this? I was like, we don't have newspapers. And then maybe they could have said, oh, look, we get a newspaper in the staff room every Mm. day. Mm. Do you want to come in 10 minutes before school and read the newspaper so that maybe you can get like four right? (laughs) So I think when you don't know who's sitting before you, then, um, and, and like an aid. how can I help you if I don't know you? Mm.
0: And that's about a holistic view of the person as well, like not just viewing them as here in this moment as a student, but as a as a person as well. You know, like what's going on that's led them to this place. I I really like that.
1: Mm. And I learned quite a bit in Samoa actually. That the NGO I worked for, um, we were doing some projects in Solomon's, and we there. A driver, um, a man called Tuli, who was actually also um, partially deaf. He was uh, also very good at pattern making. You know, so he'd cut these x-rays and they'd print um, them for uniforms and they'd also do the only kind of printed paper for their um, soap products and that. And so when, the, when um, the Solomon Islanders come over and they say, oh, you know, we love all your... Um, Activities you have for, well, you know, like we were making virgin coconut oil and we were. Doing a number of things And I said But the thing we love about it The most Is your clothes <laughs> And they said We want to know How to make your The patterns on your clothes And we're like Oh well Tully The driver <laughs> Is also Our chief pattern maker And um, you know Prints all the cloth And you know our, our wrapping paper So he got sent To Solomon's Like three times <laughs> wow. To go and teach This uh, little um, Island symbol And um, um, how to, so the women's groups over there, how to make their own mm. um, patterns. And now, and then they started their own little industry of making uniforms. For, um, it's in Western Province near Gizo, So they would do that for, you know, take that to the markets. And mm. I loved how people didn't go, you can't send him. He's yeah. the driver.
0: Yeah. Well, that's the thing is everybody's got a story and it is interesting. And if you can take the time to get to know them, that's one of the things I find with the podcast actually is normally an interview is, you know, five minutes long and it's just tell me, you know, what are you doing today? Rather than that deeper question, which is where are you from? What's shaped you? And that's what I'm trying to do with the podcast is ask some of these deeper questions to really get to know somebody and and learn more about them. Um, I do have another question for you just as we're we're getting to the end here, but I would love for you to tell the listeners a little bit about your name because before we started recording, you know, we were talking about the name and and the fact that you've got four different names and, and that you haven't been known the same throughout your life. Could you just explain that a little bit more?
1: Sure. So... Uh, the name I was born with <laughs> was uh, Felolingi Maria Ifopo, uh, which actually, interestingly, Ifopo was my grandfather's name, so um, not my, it wasn't my father's original surname. When he got married, he was advised that it would be good for him to take this other name, Ifopo, so we did. And Felolinghi, um is, I'm named after my aunt. But it's also a nod to my German ancestry because it's a transliteration of Fraulein. So um, I feel close to whenever I see the sound of music. Um, (laughs) And then Maria, uh, well, that's a Catholic, you know, so, Mm. you know, um, many Catholic families have a Maria in there. And then in 2009, um, I was asked by my parents to... Um, t- received the chiefly title of Whamwina, which comes from my mother, or my father's mother's village of Fasitottai And so I took that on and, and my dad said to me at the time, so you know, your other names, Finnish." <laughs> and so I became whamwina <laughs> And um, and I luckily I was working for Ngatahu at the time And they really embraced that and helped me through that journey mm. Changed all my business cards and everything And I learned, I used to tell people I was an apprentice chief um, As I was sort of learning the steps of that And then that same year I got married And so Tafuna'i became my surname And... Originally, I've always been a, you know, a feminist who would say, no, I'm not changing my surname. But uh, at that point where I've already lost my first name, I was like, oh, I think I don't mind this, and I didn't see it as diminishing at all. And because I'd already had um, my boy Oliver, I wanted to find a way to unite our little family. So mm-hmm. he also took the name Tafuna'i. So that is the story of Na Fidolingi Maria Tafuna'i.
0: Yeah, oh, that's great. <laughs> no, I love the idea that we can grow, that we can, that we can become more through our lives and that that name would be something that you, you take on and you adopt and, and move forward with that's awesome
1: yeah it did help me to think about identity and Mm. the names we give ourselves and how at the end of the day like i'm still this person Mm -hmm. and so yeah rather than you know this i guess we grew up here in aotearoa with passports and driver licenses Mm. (laughs) then they then they're really rigid but back in samoa if i took another title um so my dad who has a couple of titles he um He's known by different names and depending on which village he's walking in hmm. and so ha- and which one's more closely affiliated to that name
0: hmm. Wow, that's amazing, yeah, there's so much um so much to learn
1: <laughs> yes, it's definitely um I think you know when you look and we were talking about this about who you are and the more conversations you can have with people in, that you work with or people you are trying to assist on who they are that you will find ways to connect in with them mm.
0: yeah that's right well thank you so much for coming on the podcast i've really enjoyed this we've been able to talk about many different topics and i loved hearing about your childhood what it was like growing up here also just reflecting on your parents and the fact that they gave up something when they came here to give a opportunity for their kids that's yeah that was really special but then thinking about what you're doing today and in the show notes we'll put some links to things so people can find out more because i know you have written quite a lot on these topics um but yeah just thank you so much for your time and and coming on the show
1: thanks for having me and um you know i i thought this was all going to be kind of talking work 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 and But um, I am pleasantly surprised to find it's talking human, human, human.
0: Oh, that's the point of the podcast, yes. (laughs) Yep, trying to go a bit deeper with people. So, yeah, great. Thank you. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with We Na. I know for me there were several highlights, and we talked about so many different topics. If you enjoyed this, then you might want to check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog. And there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz. Until next time.